Section 17 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 17, Chapter 14, Part 1, Edward II. The prepossessions entertained in favour of young Edward kept the English from being fully sensible of the extreme loss which they had sustained by the death of the great monarch who filled the throne, and all men hastened with alacrity to take the oath of allegiance to his son and successor. This prince was in the twenty-third year of his age, was of an agreeable figure, of a mild and gentle disposition, and having never discovered a propensity to any dangerous vice, it was natural to prognosticate tranquillity and happiness from his government. But the first act of his reign blasted all these hopes, and showed him to be totally unqualified for that perilous situation in which every English monarch during those ages had, from the unstable form of the constitution, and the turbulent dispositions of the people derived from it, the misfortune to be placed. The indefatigable Robert Bruce, though his army had been dispersed, and he himself had been obliged to take shelter in the western isles, remained not long inactive, but before the death of the late king had sallied from his retreat, had again collected his followers, had appeared in the field, and had obtained, by surprise, an important advantage over Aymer de Valence, who commanded the English forces. He was now become so considerable as to have afforded the King of England sufficient glory in subduing him, without incurring any danger of seeing all those mighty preparations made by his father fail in the enterprise. But Edward, instead of pursuing his advantages, marched but a little way into Scotland, and having an utter incapacity, and equal aversion, for all application of serious business, he immediately returned upon his footsteps, and disbanded his army. His grandees perceived from this conduct that the authority of the crown, fallen into such feeble hands, was no longer to be dreaded, and that every insolence might be practised by them with impunity. The next measure taken by Edward gave them an inclination to attack those prerogatives which no longer kept them in awe. There was one Piers Gavastoun, son of a Gascon knight, of some distinction, who had honourably served the late king, and who, in reward of his merits, had obtained an establishment for his son in the family of the Prince of Wales. This young man soon insinuated himself into the affections of his master by his agreeable behaviour and by supplying him with all those innocent though frivolous amusements which suited his capacity and his inclinations. He was endowed with the utmost elegance of shape and person, was noted for a fine mien and easy carriage, distinguished himself in all warlike and genteel exercises, and was celebrated for those quick sallies of wit, 
in which his countrymen usually excel. By all these accomplishments he gained so entire an ascendant over young Edward, whose heart was strongly disposed to friendship and confidence, that the late king, apprehensive of the consequences, had banished him the kingdom, and had, before he died, made his son promise never to recall him. But no sooner did he find himself master, as he vainly imagined, than he sent for Gavaston, and even before his arrival at court, endowed him with the whole earldom of Cornwall, which had escaped to the crown by the death of Edmund, son of Richard, king of the Romans. Not content with conferring on him those possessions which had sufficed as an appanage for a prince of the blood, he daily loaded him with new honours and riches, married him to his own niece, sister of the Earl of Gloucester, and seemed to enjoy no pleasure in his royal dignity, but as it enabled him to exalt to the highest splendour this object of his fond affections. The haughty barons, offended at the superiority of a minion, whose birth, though reputable, they despised, as much inferior to their own, concealed not their discontent, and soon found reasons to justify their animosity in the character and conduct of the man they hated. Instead of disarming envy by the moderation and modesty of his behaviour, Gavaston displayed his power and influence with the utmost ostentation, and deemed no circumstance of his good fortune so agreeable as its enabling him to eclipse and mortify all his rivals. He was vain-glorious, profuse, rapacious, fond of exterior pomp and appearance, giddy with prosperity, and as he imagined that his fortune was now as strongly rooted in the kingdom as his ascendant was uncontrolled over the weak monarch, he was negligent in engaging partisans who might support his sudden and ill-established grandeur. At all tournaments he took delight in foiling the English nobility by his superior address. In every conversation he made them the object of his wit and raillery, Every day his enemies multiplied upon him, and naught was wanting but a little time to cement their union, and render it fatal both to him and to his master. It behoved the king to take a journey to France, both in order to do homage for the Duchy of Quen, and to espouse the Princess Isabella, to whom he had long been affianced, though unexpected accidents had hitherto retarded the completion of the marriage. Edward left Gavaston guardian of the realm, with more ample powers than had usually been conferred, and, on his return with his young queen, renewed all the proofs of that fond attachment to the favourite, of which every one so loudly complained. This princess was of an imperious and intriguing spirit, and finding that her husband's capacity required as his temper inclined, him to be governed, she thought herself best entitled, on every account, to perform the office, and she contracted a mortal hatred against the person who had disappointed her in these expectations. She was well pleased, therefore, to see a combination of the nobility forming against Gavaston, who, sensible of her hatred, had wantonly provoked her by new insults and injuries. Thomas, 
Earl of Lancaster, cousin German to the king, and first prince of the blood, was by far the most opulent and powerful subject in England, and possessed in his own right, and soon after in that of his wife, heiress of the family of Lincoln, no less than six earldoms, with a proportionable estate in land, attended with all the jurisdictions and power which commonly in that age were annexed to landed property. He was turbulent and factious in his disposition, mortally hated the favourite, whose influence over the king exceeded his own, and he soon became the head of that party amongst the barons who desired the depression of this insolent stranger. The confederated nobles bound themselves by oath to expel Gavaston. Both sides began already to put themselves in a warlike posture. The licentiousness of the age broke out in robberies and other disorders. The usual prelude of civil war, and the royal authority, despised in the king's own hands, and hated in those of Gavaston, became insufficient for the execution of the laws, and the maintenance of peace in the kingdom. A parliament being summoned at Westminster, Lancaster, and his party came thither with an armed retinue, and were there enabled to impose their own terms on the sovereign. They required the banishment of Gavaston, imposed an oath on him never to return, and engaged the bishops, who never failed to interpose in all civil concerns, to pronounce him excommunicated, if he remained any longer in the kingdom. Edward was obliged to submit, but even in his compliance gave proofs of his fond attachment to his favourite. Instead of removing all umbrage by sending him to his own country, as was expected, he appointed him Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, attended him to Bristol on his journey thither, and before his departure conferred on him new lands and riches, both in Gascony and England. Gavaston, who did not want bravery, and possessed talents of war, acted, during his government, with vigour against some Irish rebels whom he subdued. Meanwhile the king, less shocked with the illegal violence which had been imposed upon him, than unhappy in the absence of his minion, employed every expedient to soften the opposition of the barons to his return, as if success in that point were the chief object of his government. The high office of hereditary steward was conferred on Lancaster. His father-in-law, the Earl of Lincoln, was bought off by other concessions. Earl Varine was also mollified by civilities, grants or promises. The insolence of Gavaston, being no longer before men's eyes, was less the object of general indignation. And Edward, deeming matters sufficiently prepared for his purpose, applied to the court of Rome, and obtained for Gavaston a dispensation from that oath which the barons had compelled him to take, that he would forever abjure the realm. He went down to Chester to receive him on his first landing from Ireland, flew into his arms with transports of joy, and having obtained the formal consent of the barons in Parliament to his re-establishment, set no longer any bounds to his extravagant fondness and affection. Gavaston himself, 
forgetting his past misfortunes, and blind to their causes, resumed the same ostentation and insolence, and became more than ever the object of general detestation among the nobility. The barons first discovered their animosity by absenting themselves from Parliament, and finding that this expedient had not been successful, they began to think of employing sharper and more effectual remedies. Though there had scarcely been any national ground of complaint, except some dissipation of the public treasure, though all the acts of maladministration objected to the king and his favorite, seemed of a nature more proper to excite herd burnings in a ball or assembly than commotions in a great kingdom. Yet such was the situation of the times that the barons were determined and were able to make them the reasons of a total alteration in the constitution and civil government. Having come to Parliament, in defiance of the laws and the king's prohibition, with a numerous retinue of armed followers, they found themselves entirely masters, and they presented a petition which was equivalent to a command, requiring Edward to devolve on a chosen junto the whole authority, both of the crown and of the parliament. The king was obliged to sign a commission, empowering the prelates and barons, to elect twelve persons, who should, till the term of Michaelmas in the year following, have authority to enact ordinances for the government of the kingdom, and regulation of the king's household, consenting that these ordinances should, thenceforth and forever, have the force of laws, allowing the ordainers to form associations among themselves and their friends, for their strict and regular observance, and all this for the greater glory of God, the security of the church, and the honor and advantage of the king and kingdom. The barons, in return, signed a declaration in which they acknowledged that they owed these concessions merely to the king's free grace, promised that this commission should never be drawn into precedent, and engaged that the power of the ordainers should expire at the time appointed. The chosen junto accordingly framed their ordinances, and presented them to the king and parliament, for their confirmation in the ensuing year. Some of these ordinances were laudable, and tended to the regular execution of justice, such as those requiring sheriffs to be men of property, abolishing the practice of issuing privy seals for the suspension of justice, restraining the practice of purveyance, prohibiting the adulteration and alteration of the coin, excluding foreigners from the farms of the revenue, ordering all payments to be regularly made into the exchequer, revoking all late grants of the crown, and giving the parties damages in the case of vexatious prosecutions. But what chiefly grieved the king was the ordinance for the removal of evil counsellors, by which a great number of persons were by name excluded from every office of power and profit, and Pierre's Gavaston himself was forever banished the king's dominions, under the penalty, in case of disobedience, of being declared a public enemy. Other persons, more agreeable to the barons, were substituted in all the offices, and it was ordained that, for the future, all the considerable dignities of the household, 
as well as by the law, revenue, and military governments, should be appointed by the baronage in Parliament, and the power of making war, or assembling his military tenants, should no longer be vested solely in the king, nor be exercised without the consent of the nobility. Edward, from the same weakness both in his temper and situation, which had engaged him to grant this unlimited commission to the barons, was led to give a parliamentary sanction to their ordinances. But as a consequence of the same character, he secretly made a protest against them, and declared that, since the commission was granted only for the making of ordinances to the advantage of king and kingdom, such articles as should be found prejudicial to both were to be held as not ratified and confirmed. It is no wonder, indeed, that he retained a firm purpose to revoke ordinances which had been imposed on him by violence, which entirely annihilated the royal authority, and above all, which deprived him of the company and society of a person whom, by an unusual infatuation, he valued above all the world, and above every consideration of interest or tranquillity. As soon, therefore, as Edward, removing to York, had freed himself from the immediate terror of the baron's power, he invited back Gavaston from Flanders, which that favourite had made the place of his retreat, and declaring his banishment to be illegal, and contrary to the laws and customs of the kingdom, openly reinstated him in his former credit and authority. The barons, highly provoked at this disappointment, and apprehensive of danger to themselves from the declared animosity of so powerful a minion, saw that either his or their ruin was now inevitable and they renewed with redoubled zeal their former confederacies against him. The Earl of Lancaster was a dangerous head of this alliance. Guy, Earl of Warwick, entered into it with a furious and precipitate passion. Humphrey Bowen, Earl of Hereford, the Constable, and Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, brought to it a great accession of power and interest. Even Earl Varin deserted the royal cause, which he had hitherto supported, and was induced to embrace the side of the confederates. And as Robert de Winchelsea, Archbishop of Canterbury, professed himself of the same party, he determined the body of the clergy, and consequently the people, to declare against the king and his minion. So predominant at that time was the power of the great nobility, that the combination of a few of them was always able to shake the throne, and such a universal concurrence became irresistible. The Earl of Lancaster suddenly raised an army and marched to York, where he found the king already removed to Newcastle. He flew thither in pursuit of him, and Edward had just time to escape to Tinmouth, where he embarked and sailed with Gavaston to Scarborough. He left his favourite in that fortress, which, had it been properly supplied with provisions, was deemed impregnable, and he marched forward to York, in hopes of raising an army which might be able to support him against his enemies. Pembroke was sent by the confederates to besiege the castle of Scarborough, and Gavaston, 
sensible of the bad condition of his garrison, was obliged to capitulate and to surrender himself prisoner. He stipulated that he should remain in Pembroke's hands for two months, that endeavors should, during that time, be mutually used for a general accommodation, that if the terms proposed by the barons were not accepted, the castle should be restored to him in the same condition as when he surrendered it, and that the Earl of Pembroke and Henry Piercy should, by contract, pledge all their lands for the fulfilling of these conditions. Pembroke, now master of the person of this public enemy, conducted him to the castle of Diddington, near Banbury, where, on pretense of other business, he left him, protected by a feeble guard. Warwick, probably in concert with Pembroke, attacked the castle. The garrison refused to make any resistance. Gavaston was yielded up to him, and conducted to Warwick Castle. The earls of Lancaster, Hereford, and Arundel immediately repaired thither, and without any regard either to the laws or the military capitulation, they ordered the head of the obnoxious favorite to be struck off by the hands of the executioner. The king had retired northward to Berwick when he heard of Gavaston's murder, and his resentment was proportioned to the affection which he had ever borne him while living. He threatened vengeance on all the nobility who had been active in that bloody scene, and he made preparations for war in all parts of England. But being less constant in his enmities than in his friendships, he soon after hearkened to terms of accommodation, granted the barons a pardon of all offences, and as they stipulated to ask him publicly pardon on their knees, he was so pleased with these vain appearances of submission, that he seemed to have sincerely forgiven them all past injuries. But as they still pretended, notwithstanding their lawless conduct, a great anxiety for the maintenance of law, and required the establishment of their former ordinances, as a necessary security for that purpose, Edward told them that he was willing to grant them a free and legal confirmation of such of those ordinances as were not entirely derogatory to the prerogative of the crown. This answer was received for the present as satisfactory. The king's person, after the death of Gavaston, was now become less obnoxious to the public, and as the ordinances insisted on, appeared to be nearly the same with those which had formerly been extorted from Henry the Third by Mountforth and which had been attended with so many fatal consequences. They were, on that account, demanded with less vehemence by the nobility and people. The minds of all men seemed to be much appeased, the animosities of faction no longer prevailed, and England, now united under its head, would henceforth be able, it was hoped, to take vengeance on all its enemies, particularly on the Scots, whose progress was the object of general resentment and indignation. Immediately after Edward's retreat from Scotland, Robert Bruce left his fastnesses, in which he intended to have shattered his feeble army, and supplying his defect of strength by superior vigor and abilities, he made deep impression on all his enemies, foreign and domestic.
he chased Lord Argyle and the chieftain of the MacDowells from their hills, and made himself entirely master of the high country. He thence invaded with success the commons in the low countries of the north. He took the castles of Inverness, Forfar, and Brechin. He daily gained some new accession of territory, and what was a more important acquisition, he daily reconciled the minds of the nobility to his dominion, and enlisted under his standard every bold leader, whom he enriched by the spoils of his enemies. Sir James Douglas, in whom commenced the greatness and renown of that warlike family, seconded him in all his enterprises. Edward Bruce, Robert's own brother, distinguished himself by acts of valour, and the terror of the English power being now abated by the feeble conduct of the king, even the least sanguine of the Scots began to entertain hopes of recovering their independence, and the whole kingdom, except a few fortresses which he had not the means to attack, had acknowledged the authority of Robert. End of section 17. Chapter 14. Part 1.